Welcome to Faith Is, and here we go. We're going to take a look today at one of the very popular, very well-known stories from the Bible and learn some lessons from it. Some we probably know, some we probably will learn for the first time as we look at it more carefully. But the story we're going to look at is like no other story anyone could imagine, except that God imagined it and God pulled it off. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to the program that challenges each of us, and we challenge each other to stretch in God's direction, to stretch toward God's high calling, I sometimes say. And we understand that a big part of that is having faith. And we have, for the purposes of our conversations, defined faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And it seems to me that the more confidence we have in God, the more we are convinced that he is worthy of our trust, the more we live lives that demonstrate faith. I don't think any of us does that perfectly. At least I haven't found the perfect person. And as soon as you think you've found the perfect person and you ask them if they are, they will quickly tell you they are not, which convinces me they're farther down the road than I am because they didn't even have to stop and think about saying they weren't perfect. Some people might have to think about that a little bit. Those are the people I worry about. What about you? Well, anyway, we're going to get into the whole story in a minute, but I've been thinking about this Oliver Anthony phenomenon. We talked about it recently, and I've been thinking about it a little bit more, and, and so I thought we ought to revisit that because just as the people in the Bible were trying to understand their times and adapt to it. And some years ago, it was very popular to refer to a verse in the Old Testament about how the sons of Issachar understood their times. Well, we need to understand our times as well. We need to understand both the challenges we face, the source of those challenges, so we can do good to overcome those challenges and and at the same time, we have to navigate through them. And I've been thinking about this in relation to Oliver Anthony's song. You remember, you've probably heard it on one recording or another. It was at the top of many charts. The song I'm referring to is titled Rich Men North of Richmond. And when we talked about this before, I called it a lament. And I think that's still a fair way to describe it. He was in a sense, bemoaning for all of us how hard it was to live, and he was placing the responsibility on making it hard for us on what he referred to as rich men north of Richmond. And if you're familiar with geography and imagination, you probably nailed that. He's referring to the decisions that get made in Washington, D.C. And so his lament was for a better world, a, a world where we have a chance to survive and thrive, a world where when we try to get ahead, we actually can get ahead. And so I've been thinking about that. And I said at the time that I thought his lament really, and, and because he read from the book of Revelation, I shouldn't forget that, chapter 21. Go back and read that if you, if you are not familiar with it, haven't read it for a while. So he referred to Revelation and his song lyrics are a lament that points to the desire for a better life. And I suggested, could it be that, that people responding to that are responding 
out of a longing for something they may not even be able to name. Now, I know people say, well, that's kooky. How can people long for something they can't name? Well, I understand that, but hang on. Maybe there's something going on in the hearts of people today that, that they don't even understand, that they can't quite wrap their understanding around, their head around. They have no frame of reference for it. And yet, could it be that God is speaking to them in a way that they never imagined hearing? And could it be that this song is a lament for the coming of the new world God is going to usher in at the end of time, or we sometimes say the day of the Lord? The Bible talks about a holy city coming down, that there's going to be a whole new creation of a place for God's people to live with him forever, and he will dwell among them. We see all kinds of hints of that, uh, how should you say, aspiration or, or intention by God throughout the scriptures. But I suggested that what interested me as much as the song is the idea that maybe it's a lament that people are resonating with because they have this God-given, can we say, even if they don't recognize it as that, could it be this God-given desire for a better place and a longing for what we sometimes call heaven? Now, it's not a very exacting description, but I think you know what I mean. Are people really longing for heaven? Well, I don't know if they are, but I kind of think it might be something that God is using to speak to people in a way they never imagined that he would or that they would hear from him. And and by the way, in case some of you are a little nervous out there, I understand that the song uses language that many of us would not use. I wouldn't use it. Probably you wouldn't. All right, I'm not going to get in the weeds about that. I think the bigger issue here is how people are responding to what the songwriter is communicating. I don't think they're responding to individual words. And yes, many of the people that hear the song might not use that language either. But don't let that sidetrack you from considering, could God be using that? And could that be something that's giving birth to a desire inside the hearts of people that they don't even recognize as they long for a better world that we would call heaven? That new Jerusalem, the holy city that God is preparing and that will come down to us when the heavens and earth, as we understand them, pass away and we live forever with him. So if that's true, then people might say, well, that's great. That sounds like pie in the sky by and by. Is that what you're talking about? Well, yes and no. Uh, Yes, in that it it is true that God is going to prepare a place for his people and is preparing it now so that one day we will live with him forever and we will enjoy what we call usually heaven. So yes, I'm referring to that, but I'm not talking about pie in the sky by and by because that reality of a new city is not pie in the sky. That is what God has promised. And if you wonder about his promises, you need to pay close attention to the way the story of the Bible unfolds and pay close attention to all the times that he keeps his promises. Uh, A hint, we have talked about Abraham. Abraham was promised a son at age 75. Impossible, you would say. 
His wife was pretty old too. Impossible, you would say. But 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah had a son. God kept his promise. And Isaac became known as the son of promise because he was the promise, the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. So when we say pie in the sky, that tends to mean that it's um, uh, something we imagine that, well, we th- it's fun to think about it, but it's never going to happen. Hey, this new city that God is preparing is going to happen. I'll meet you there at the corner of Broadway and Main, shall we say. Well, that's silly. Yes. Of course it is. But I'd still like to meet you there. So, it's not pie in the sky by and by. It is by and by because it will be one day. It's not here now. But it's not pie in the sky. It's a promise that God has made. But you might say, well then, why bother with anything here and now? Well, I think that's a very good question, an appropriate one. Can we imagine, can we hope for, can we realize and experience a better world today? You see, it's, is, is it really enough to look at the Bible and say, well, God has a better world someday, we just have to be patient and wait? Or is the Bible communicating to us that there's a better world possible now? You see, Jesus communicated that his kingdom had come, and he invited people into that kingdom. And so it's fair to, to understand from that that it's possible to have a better world today. We look at the history of the world, and there have been better times than others. In the history of God's people, during the, during the reign of King David, Things were really good. They look back at that as the highlight of their history as told in the Old Testament stories. So it is possible, we know from history, we know from what God says, it's possible to have a better world today. It's possible to overcome evil with good, which would be part of providing and bringing to pass a better world today. So how do we get to that better world today? If, if it's possible, and I am convinced that it is, and I hope you are too, if it's possible that we can get to a better world today, uh, how do we get there? Or are we left just to kind of shrug our shoulders and decide, well, there's nothing much we can do. We'll have to wait for the day of the Lord, for the Lord's return. And I want to say clearly, decisively, that we don't have to wait for a better day. There is a better way now. And yet people seem to have given up on that idea. I I don't quite understand why people give up in light of God's promises and the fact that he keeps his promises. But I want to challenge you to think about how we bring about this better world today. Now, i got to warn you, some of you are going to dismiss this because you don't want to be the one. Now, you, you are the one, though. You are the one that we've all been waiting for. Well, you are the one we've been waiting to step up. Uh, why won't you? See, some people just want to say, well, it's not my problem, and go on their merry way. Well, I want to challenge you to make this your challenge and to, and to, to live up to what God is inviting you into today. Now, I recently heard someone suggests that the answer to all of the 
the church, Christian confusion, things that are going on today, all the drifting from faithfulness to, to God and faithfulness to the Bible could be solved by one particular emphasis. And that got me thinking. Got me thinking about a lot of things. One, I, my first thought was, yeah, that's right. That would change everything. My next thought was, hmm, why haven't we been talking about this? That's a fair question, and we need to talk about it. That's why we're talking about it today. If you're up to the challenge, I, I assume if, you, if you're still with me, you're up to the challenge. You're up to the challenge of being part of God's better way, better life today. So I couldn't quite wrap my head around all of this until I began to think it out a little bit more, and then I realized that what they were saying was right. We haven't really been talking about this emphasis much. Even the people who have been known historically for this emphasis have not been talking about it all that much. And uh, I thought that's interesting because that has been on my radar for a while. And I kind of understand the reasons for that. I kind of think we need to do a better job of getting back to this emphasis. Anyway, what's the emphasis for crying out loud? Well, this person who suggested this uh, also surprised me because I don't really know this much about this person at all. But from the context that I heard the statement made and all that, I don't think, or, I, or at least I couldn't tell, that this person comes from a context of, of Christian faith that emphasizes the, the idea he was suggesting. So that even more got my attention. I'm thinking, now wait a minute, if these people who haven't historically emphasized this are starting to mention it, we may need to pay attention. Now, having said that, some of you might be a little concerned. Well, am I throwing stones? No, I'm not throwing stones at anyone. If I'm throwing stones at anyone, I'm throwing with people who have been a part of the movement that has emphasized this, who have de-emphasized it or forgotten it or whatever. Things do have a tendency to ebb and flow. I get that. Things need to be reimagined from time to time, even things that are correct. And I'm not throwing stones at the this group that seemed to me to be not part of this stream of thinking. I'm, I'm expecting everybody would say, now, wait a minute, we emphasize that, we believe in that, every Christian, that is. So just understand kind of the nuances here. Well, there's that word. I don't like to use nuances, but, but the, the, the competing values, should we say, that some groups emphasize some things over others and together we make up the body of Christ and, and maybe we get the full extent of what God wants to communicate to us. But anyway, this person said two words that he believed would solve all the confusion and the difficulty we're having. And those two words were these simple words. Ready? Holy living. And I thought, ding, 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 ding. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If everybody who calls themselves a Christian were to purposefully live a holy life, wouldn't that solve our problems? I mean, particularly in our country, the USA, where almost everyone says they're a Christian or identifies with Christian thinking in one way or another. I mean, there are other non-Christian faiths. I get that. But the vast majority of us, when push comes to shove, would say we're Christian. And if that's true, 
then wouldn't Christians living holy lives change everything? Hmm, I think it would. So, so Pastor Rick, are you saying that, that, that we don't live holy lives? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know about you. But I do know something about the church as I've seen it over these years. And I do know that, that we have moved a long way from carefully thinking about how we live to a point that, well, we shouldn't get all upset about all these things. And, and uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of grace. We use, and we use that word way too much and way improperly. But people will, will think or say, well, we live under grace, so we don't have to be so strict with ourselves. Well, there you go. That's what people often think of as holy living, being strict with ourselves. But really, you look in the New Testament, there's a whole list of positive attributes, fruit of the Spirit, positive qualities, and the New Testament says there's no law against those things. So we're not talking restrictive living, we're talking about liberated living that does the right thing. Now, is it restrictive if we have to say no to things? Well, of course. God is inviting us into a lifestyle, into a life of liberty, because there are so many things that we can do, but he's also inviting us out of where we've been, out of doing things we shouldn't do. So, so really, holy living comes down to a very simple concept, and, and, and I don't want to make this simplistic, but it's really not that complicated. Holy living comes down to doing what God says. So if God says, do this, you do it. Uh, should I put a plug in here for going to church? God says, do it. Find a church. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy, but find a church that's closest to the Bible in your area and go to that church. You need them. They need you. And now, when you show up, they might not think they need you. I understand that. And when you visit, at first, you might not think you need them. But stick it out long enough. If, as long as they're faithfully following the teachings of the Bible, Stick it out long enough to be a part of that fellowship and to get to know people. It takes several years to get to know a group of people and feel like you've always been there. People will visit a church for two or three or four Sundays, and they just don't feel like they fit in, and so they don't go back. Well, the truth is, after three or four Sundays, you won't feel like you fit in. You just got to keep at it. You just got to keep showing up. And I think that whole idea of keep showing up is a demonstration to God that you're serious. See, even God is looking down saying, yep, wonder how long they'll last. Well, there's two Sundays in a row. I wonder if they'll make it to three. Ah, there's three. Sure. Now, I'm not sure. Will they make it to four? Now, God's rooting for you to be sure to get to four and then to five and then to six and, and to keep going every week to church. God's rooting for you. But you know, at some point, God wants to know if you're serious enough, and do you show up? And and will you? Do you? Well, so holy living is doing what God says, and one of the things is going to church. There's other things. That's the easiest I can think of right now, is simply going to church. So following him and following what he says, patterning our lives after what Jesus taught and did is one thing. And the other thing is to Stop doing what God says not to do. Well, now that gets a little closer because people say, you mean I really need to 
say no to some things? The answer is yes. Well, what things? Well, you could give up your lying and cheating for one thing, but when I say that, I doubt if too many people among us here today are liars and cheats. There might be a few, and if it's you, then knock it off, all right? That's pretty simple. That's basic Ten Commandments stuff. There may be some other things that that maybe there are things that you think of as on the margins, and there may be some things that, well, you know, some Christians that say don't, and other Christians that say do, and so you've been well, how should I say, wondering about whether you should or not, but you t- decided you'd land with the ones who say do. And at the same time, God is, with his quiet, still, small voice, gentle way, saying, you know, you need to knock that off. You just need to stop. Well, that's how we get to what we have always called holy living. I mean, that's a be- that's a beginning. And some people, they, they, they also think that, well, Holy living can't be achieved in this life. Well, that's just baloney. Okay, theologically speaking, that's just baloney. God is not trying to trick you. And he's not going to trick you into doing things you shouldn't do, into not doing things that are okay. God is going to guide you in the way you should go. All right? And you can depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide you. You can depend upon a good, solid church with mature believers to guide you. So God is not going to trick you, and the Bible wouldn't call us to a, to a level of living that God couldn't help us achieve. But God's not doing it for you. You have to say no to things and knock that stuff off. And you have to say yes to things and get yourself up in the morning on Sundays and get to church, even though you won't feel like going. Okay? Now, i got to be honest with you. There are very few Sundays in my life that I don't feel like going. Well, I understand that because I'm, I have a little different responsibility at church, and you understand that, and you'd be really horrified if I told you I don't want to go every Sunday. Well, that's ridiculous, because I don't have that kind of problem. There have been a few times in my life that I didn't really want to go, but that was my problem, not God's problem, and not the church's problem. So I want to say to us, we need to get to doing what God says do, and get to stopping what God says stop. And we need to follow in the direction that he leads us. And we're going to talk about some people in a little bit when we get to the Bible story that really illustrates a lot of this about how they followed God where he led them. So, first thing I've been thinking about is holy living will solve our problems. And we've then talked about what is holy living. And that's simply doing what God says do and stopping what God says stop. It's not really more complicated than that. I suspect... I can't prove. You'll know when I say it. I suspect that we hide behind the complications to get away with or to try to get away with stuff we know we should fix in our lives. Uh, Why are we afraid to do it? Well, I think fear is part of it. We're afraid that we have to give up something that we're going to miss. The Bible nowhere says that anybody will give up anything for the sake of following Jesus that they will miss. You may have to lay some things down, and you may have to train yourself to to get past it, but you can do it. Don't be afraid. Take the plunge. Now, maybe we aren't afraid, and and maybe we just think we can get away with it. Well, sorry, you're not going to get away with it. You see, the benefit 
of making a commitment to holy living is that it separates you from sin. It, it makes that division. And it's clear. It's doable. It's achievable. You can stop sinning. Now, some people don't believe that today, but that's just not what the Bible says. Some people think all they can do is kind of manage and muddle through their sin. Well, I haven't quoted this friend of mine who I've never met. He didn't live that far from me, but I've never had the occasion to meet him. But he calls stuff like that lies from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke. If you think you can't lay your sin down and there's nothing God can do for you and you can't get over, you just got to muddle your way through and manage your way through sin, you're, you're just missing the whole point. Can I be blunt? That's just a lie from the pit of hell and it does smell like smoke. You see, the whole concept of holy living is it liberates us from stuff so we can do the right thing. So we can enjoy what the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit. So there's evidence of that in our, their, in our lives. Because there's no law against that stuff, right? The other thing we need to realize, and this is very important, is that God himself is holy. And so he wants us to be holy. He wants us to live like him. Now, even as we talk about this, I know some of you are thinking, mercy, that's a huge deal. God wants me to live a holy life. Well, understand what that means. That means you take the next step. Whatever it is that God has been talking to you about that you need to stop doing or that you need to start doing, make that decision and make it now. Do the next thing. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. Just do the next thing. And you can do that because if God is in it, and if he's putting that in your heart and mind to change it, you can do it. He's going to give you grace, and that's a proper use of the term grace. He's going to give you grace to do it. Because I define grace as God's gift to the people of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. So if God wants you to do it, he's going to give you grace to do it. Another thing you need to think about is that holy living is, is for everyone, not for super saints. Now, you may be fortunate, I hope you are, that you know someone pretty well that you might think of as a super saint. If that person really is a, what we might call super saint, uh, you'll know it because they don't think they are. They're just going through life like everybody else. But, but you may have recognized in their life that they seem to, to have kind of grown and matured and they understand well that's for you too it's not for super saints you just need to take that next step toward holy living now some of you might be thinking and here's where the rubber really starts hitting the road with this all right i hope you're ready for this some of you might be thinking well i don't know what the next step is well all you have to do is ask God to show you the next step. It's really that simple. The question is, comes down to this. Will you give God permission to search your heart and then to tell you what the next step is? Now, some people say, well, I don't know if I want God to know that much about me. <laughs> I got news for you. He already knows you're not going to surprise him with anything. Uh, you're just not. He's way ahead of you. He's way ahead of me. He's ahead of all of us. The question, see, comes down to your 
willingness, not your ability. Your willingness to, to give God permission to search your heart. And see, when you give him permission, then he's going to check it out. And when he looks around and he gets familiar with all of that, which he already is, and now that you've given him permission, he's going to start talking to you. And you're going to have to start responding. Because, see, at that point, you have no excuse. When we give God permission to speak to us and tell us what that next thing is we need to deal with, then we need to to be responsible enough to do it. Now, for some of us, I want to give another idea. Maybe when you talk to God, say, I want, you, I want you to have permission to tell me what I need to hear. That's what you want to say. Tell me what I need to hear. Then what you may hear from God is, you're doing great. I so appreciate you making every attempt to follow me in, in every way you understand. And he may affirm and build up and reinforce that you're doing the right thing or things, or whatever it might be for you. So you see, when you give God permission to search your heart, it's not about how bad you are. It's about, just be honest with me, God, so that I can be what I need to be before you. See, holy living will lead us in the way we need to go. God will lead you in the way you need to go. In the same way he led the people in the story we're going to look at when we get back from this break, in the way they needed to go. And it didn't seem like the right way at first, because God kind of sets the stage for a most remarkable intervention. But God kept his promise to his people, and they came out ahead. Same way when we follow him, he will keep his promise to us, and we'll come out ahead. So are you ready for the adventure of holy living? Well, I hope so. We're going to follow the adventures of God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, when we get back. So relax. Think this through, pray, and give God permission to speak to you. And who knows what you'll hear. It might be well done. It might be get busy. In either case, we'll be right back. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. 
Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. America Out Loud News was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Well, we the courageous are back. We have enough courage to invite God to speak to us and to move in his direction. And here we are, we're back, and we're going to take a look at a story from the Bible where God invited his people to follow him, and they followed, and wow, was it a good outcome because of that. Now, I can't promise you just as good an outcome every time you follow God, but I can promise you that in the end, in the day of the Lord, it'll be the best outcome you can imagine. Sometimes we have ups and downs here, but when we are faithful to God, He honors us and He helps us in ways we never could have imagined. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. You're listening to Faith Is, and we're going to take up now a real good illustration from the Bible of the story of God's people following Him. Now, we left the story with Moses and him saying to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. And I've often said that's both liberation from slavery, but out for a purpose, going out of Egypt for a purpose to worship God. I've also often reminded people that, hey, that's about religious liberty. And we need to always remember that religious liberty is God's idea first, and we should never cave in to it. We should never give it up. We should never compromise on religious liberty. So they're leaving Egypt and all has gone pretty well. Well, not for the Egyptians, because in every household, both of people and animals, the firstborn died because God went through Egypt, and every household that was not protected by the blood of the lamb, painted on their doorposts and lintel, painted there as a protection. You look at the text carefully, and the people who are experts at that tell us what that means is that God was protecting that household. So they leave. The the Egyptians give them all kinds of gifts, and out they go, wealthy, 
people con compared to how they w had been with slaves and they march out of Egypt. Everything they have, they take with them and away they go. And they are led out by what is described in the Bible as a pillar of cloud and fire, a cloud during the day, and it, be it becomes fire at night so they can see it. And this is the visible presence of God among them, leading them out. So not only has God by the plagues and and particularly the the angel of death that went through Egypt demonstrated his power over Pharaoh, he is now leading his people in a visible way so they can't miss it. So they head on out and they're led by God in this particular way, cloud during the day, fire at night. And then verse 14 is quite interesting, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, is quite interesting in that story where, where the Lord said to Moses, now this is God being quoted here in the text, and he, and he says to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will save the Israelites. They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. That's a good phrase there at the end, isn't it? And they did so. They did exactly as God had instructed them. He gave these instructions to Moses. They were very clear and specific. Now, full story is we don't understand exactly where they were going. The exact locations of these places have been lost. People are still working on trying to identify them, and there, there's a lot of conversation that goes on with that. But we don't know exactly. But we do know that the writer knew exactly where they were. And so it's very interesting that the writer knew exactly where they were, and we don't know exactly where they were, but the point is not the location. The point is where God is leading them and what he is setting up. See, that's so significant because it's true. The, the best we can tell of the route is it looks kind of confused. And so when the text says that Pharaoh looked at that, where they were going, and he got word about that, he said, oh, they're all confused. We'll go get them because he suddenly had a change of heart and realized he shouldn't have let them go. He was losing something valuable, so he goes after them. But God orchestrates this whole thing and sets it all up. And, and you notice what it says here? Uh, he will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. So God says, look, Pharaoh's going to come after you, no doubt about it, but I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all the army and the Egyptians. Finally, they'll know it. And he did. So see, God is setting this up. So the people are there next to this sea, to the body of water. And again, we don't know exactly what body of water that was. There are a lot of reasons to think it was a freshwater lake. And if you doubt that lakes could serve this purpose, they clearly could. My family and I vacationed on a lake in northern Minnesota that was seven miles long and about two miles across. I forget the exact distance across, but it was a long way. So... There could be a, a lake, it could be anything, we just don't know. But that doesn't change the importance of the story. God sets up this encounter. And so, when the people are there, they look up and they see, aha, Pharaoh's after us. And so he gets all of his army together. Verse 7 of chapter 14 says he took 600 elite chariots. 
and and away they go. And the Lord hardened his heart, and he pursued Israel with with a vast army. Now remember, this is a an ancient world superpower coming after them. Six hundred chariots is no small contingent of soldiers. And it's also important to notice that it says here, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, people get a little nervous about that. They say, well, did God set Pharaoh up for destruction because he didn't like Pharaoh? Well, clearly he had something against Pharaoh because he set him up to learn a hard, hard lesson. But it's not as though that God required that of Pharaoh. You go back and look at the story, and Pharaoh had every opportunity to let the people go. And even here, he could have let the people go. But you read the New Testament and you discover, look at Romans chapter 1, read through that, and about middle of the chapter you'll discover that when people turn away from God and from the truth, He gives them what they want, and it results in damage to their hearts. And at some point we could understand that to mean they had hard hearts because they turned away from God. And here Pharaoh is is not at all honoring God. He thought he was the, the powerful one, the God. He had every reason to think that because of his history, but God was about to show him. So don't get caught up where it says several times through this story, even back in the plague account, and now here about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. That was Pharaoh's doing because he rejected God, and God just let it happen. And that's how we understand that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So he gets close to the Egyptians, or the Egyptians get close to, to Israel, God's people, and they were in great fear, and they cried out to the Lord. And, and of course, when you're in a bad spot, you should cry out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, here they are. Essentially, they're saying to Moses, we told you so. This wasn't going to end well. We told you that when we were in Egypt. And here you are. You're bringing us out here to die in the wilderness. And what have we done for this? Is this not what we said? Are there no graves for us in, in, <laughs> in Egypt? Uh, what a hilarious kind of statement. Now, we understand they were afraid. We understand they're learning all over again because many of them may have forgotten who God was and what he had done and what he had promised. So they're learning all over again. So we can have a little understanding of that. But they say, are there no graves for us out here? Well, the hilarious part is the Egyptians specialized in graves and taking care of the dead. Have you heard of the pyramids? Well, you understand that. So so it's really kind of a comical thing that they say here in their terror that Egypt is bearing down on them. But Moses said to them, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Wow, that's pretty good reassurance, isn't it? You'll never see these rascals again because the Lord's going to fight for you. Just relax. Well, I don't know how easy it would be to relax in that situation, but that's clearly what God and Moses were trying to communicate. And, and, and God says to Moses, okay, we'll take care of this. Uh, tell, the Egypt, tell the Israelites to go forward, but you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Aha! So that's the famous crossing of the Red Sea. 
What's he say to Moses? Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. So he does. We know the story. He lifts his hand up and the wind blows and all of a sudden the sea opens. And, and based upon the numbers that people calculate, it's suggested that he opened a half mile wide path in that great body of water. And the water stood up on the side like walls and they walked down through there. And, and, and then Moses says, I will harden the hearts of the, of the Egyptians so that they will go after you, them. Or this is God saying, sorry, God saying to Moses, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. So I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. Then, and he says again, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And of course, that's what happened. Moses held up his his hands, held up the staff, the waters parted, and the bed of the lake or sea or whatever it happened to be, wherever it happened to be, was dry. Very significant to understand that. It was dry, and God's people walked across. Now, where are the Egyptians, and how come they didn't get keep coming and get close enough? Well, remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that we talked about initially? That was the visible presence of God among his people. And that cloud moved to get between the Egyptians and Israel, and so they couldn't come closer. Darkness or light or both, it's a little hard to understand that from the text. I've heard it explained a couple of ways. One, that the Egyptian side was dark, so they couldn't see, and the Israelite side was fiery, and it gave them light in the darkness, so they could see to get across, and that might be. Um, You you look at that and see what you figure out. Part of me asked the question as I was looking at this, could it have been just such a huge fire since this was night, a big ball of fire that it was terrifying for the Egyptians, and so they stayed away, and then it gave light to God's people. And of course, Moses may well have, and we don't know this, he didn't write it down for us, Moses may well have recognized that cloud, that fire, because he had seen fire not too long before at at an event we call the burning bush. So here now Moses, having seen a fire once, now sees this fire in the sky, and wow, God's presence is there. And so God's people go across on dry ground, no problem. Well, once they get across, then God lets the Egyptians follow, because remember, he has set this whole thing up, this whole trap up. And so the Egyptians then, they march straight ahead. They don't hesitate. All accounts, all the ways we understand the accounts, they marched right in to follow God's people across. They, they thought, well, they can do it, so can we. And uh, you know, in they went. They got in a little ways, and all of a sudden something changed. It's very interesting to notice the sequence of this in the, in the story. They get in there, and all of a sudden, God clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. Now, what that sounds like and likely is, is that all of a sudden the dry ground became muddy again, and it clogged them up so that they couldn't go forward and they couldn't go backward. 
because in verse 25 of chapter 14 in Exodus, the Egyptians are quoted as saying, let us free, flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Aha, they couldn't go forward and get them and they couldn't go back because God had trapped them right there in the middle of that body of water, that sea, and they had nowhere to go. Even though at that point they realized they, they were done for. They knew they needed to flee because God was fighting against them. And sure enough, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the water came back together, and it killed all of the army of Egypt. The whole 600 chariots worth of men were killed when the water came back together. A devastating blow. Devastating. It may not have been the entire army of Egypt, we have a historical evidence to indicate that there were many more chariots than that at one time. But it was a huge, huge defeat for the army of Egypt when God came along and said, Okay, fellas, and he killed them when he let the water go back together. Stunning. Nobody could have imagined that. Well, take a look here. Take a look here. Verse 30 of chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Wouldn't it be nice if we feared the Lord? That if we feared the Lord, as is described here enough, to actually do what he says, follow where he says to go, they followed him right through across on dry land. We may be invited to follow God in ways we never imagined, and they did, and we should. We will, if we fear him in the right sense of that word, if we fear him in the realization that we, what as Jesus said, need to fear the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. We don't need to worry about the other folks because they can't do that. We need to fear the God who can do that. And we need to trust him. And he led his people through. And so they feared the Lord and they believed. They actually had confidence in the Lord, it says here. They began to have confidence in the Lord because they believed him. That's, that's part of the way, and I'm not specifically, specifically from this story, but part of the reason that I came up with this definition that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we need to learn to have confidence that we can trust God. And they had enough confidence to trust him to walk through on dry ground, and then they saw that their confidence was validated when God took out the Egyptian army. So it says they they feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and his servant Moses. And that's that's a pretty good statement there. They believed his servant Moses. Because, you know, they, they and Moses had had a little bit of a challenge getting along when Moses first came back. And, and yet, they were beginning to understand. That wasn't the end of things because they still had more challenges coming. But it's a beginning. It's also interesting, and we shouldn't miss this. A lot of ways we can look at this this story, a lot, lot of possible understandings, okay? But one of the things that we should take away from is that the people there believed the Lord. They did exactly what God expected them to do. 
On the other hand, Pharaoh didn't. Pharaoh repeatedly rejected God. He only sent the people out after God had decisively humbled him with the death of the firstborn across Egypt. But even then, Pharaoh did not fear the Lord. He continued on, and he saw destruction, destruction of his elite army. You see, God's people at least have come to the point now that they fear the Lord and believe him. Pharaoh did neither. In fact, at the beginning, when Moses and Pharaoh began to talk about Pharaoh releasing the people, Pharaoh's comment to Moses was, who is this God you're talking about? He didn't know about that. He wasn't going to acknowledge him at all. And he never did. But God's people did. And that's something we should should remember. Then we should follow because that's a huge theological lesson from us. And And we should always remember that God set this up by leading the people to that exact spot. It looked like they were done, but they weren't because God wasn't done. And he got them through. And we need to realize that You know, it may look bad for us, but God's not finished. He's not finished until the end of time, and we need to press forward. So, three things to make sure we remember from this story and not forget. First is that what we just mentioned, God set up the problem at the Red Sea. It's just, when I read that, and I just kind of shake my head, because I like maps, and I travel sometimes, and and. My dad taught me a long time ago, if you want to know how to get someplace, you just pretend you draw a line from where you are to where you want to be, and then you follow the road that gets you closest to that straight line. Well, that's not too complicated. I thought that was pretty insightful when he told me that. I was pretty young when I learned how to begin to read a map. And so I would have expected that God would take them, you know, on that straight line route. Well, there were several reasons God didn't. One of them, maybe the biggest reason, was because he had one more lesson to teach Pharaoh. And he did. So God set the problem up. So, you know, sometimes when we face problems, we need to stop and realize that, you know, if if we're faithful, if we're living holy lives and following God in the way he's asked us to follow, then when these problems get set up, we maybe need to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe this is God's doing. And when God is involved with our lives and with our problems, then we can expect the next thing we should take away from this is that God solved the Red Sea problem. You see, he didn't ever intend for his people to have to handle this battle with Egypt, and they didn't. They couldn't. They were slaves running for their lives. But God set the problem up, and then God solved the problem for them in a way that none of them, we couldn't have even imagined We can understand it now because we get to read the story. But isn't it remarkable how they must have felt, but they pressed on. And the third thing we should remember is that that God's servant Moses played a key role in the whole thing. And I've, I've noticed all of my life in the church that so many people think that they just don't have anything to offer to God and that what they do or don't do doesn't matter. Well, it's very clear, it's confirmed by the prophet Isaiah, that actually when Moses lifted up his staff to part the waters and then to close them back, that was Moses' hands, but it was God 
working through Moses' hands. So when Moses lifted his hand, it was as though God were lifting his hand to divide the sea and to, then to bring the sea back together to destroy Pharaoh's army. But you know, if we're going to be faithful to God, we have to be willing to hear from him. And he will help us, and he will lead us and guide us in the way we need to go. And who knows, who knows what you and God together might accomplish. We will never know if you don't try. Seek godly counsel, talk to your pastor, talk to your mature Christian friends, and if God has put it in your heart, and if they agree with you, then what are you afraid of? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's what he said to his people. That's what he might be saying to you. And we, his people, need you to be faithful to him. Well, I appreciate you being here. Glad you could take this journey with me. Hey, we're going to take it again next week, so be back here then. I'm Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick.